This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, we're welcoming back two politicology favorites. Returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California, our good friend Mike Madrid. Mike, it's good to see you. Great to be with you guys. And Politicology's favorite psychology professor, Catherine Sanderson. Catherine earned her doctorate in psychology from Princeton University and is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's also the author of Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. Catherine, it's so good to see you in person for the first time. This is very exciting. Welcome back. Thank you. On this week's Roundup, first, how Mark Meadows' text messages show how Trump's inner circle communicated before and after January 6th, and the newly revealed audio of Kevin McCarthy saying he'd call on Trump to resign. Followed by the deal for Elon Musk to acquire Twitter and what it could mean for democracy. And finally, when we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about the labels of misinformation and disinformation as described by a Politicology Plus listener. Again, that will be for Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and explainers and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology Show in that app and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Monday, CNN revealed that they had obtained more than 2,300 text messages sent or received by then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows between Election Day in 2020 and Joe Biden's inauguration on January 20th, 2021. The texts include messages from the Trump family, Ivanka and Don Jr. and son-in-law Jared Kushner. White House and campaign officials, cabinet members, prominent Republicans, January 6th rally organizers, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, and Fox hosts, including Sean Hannity. Many of the texts included plans to fight to overturn the election results. Don Jr. and former Energy Secretary Rick Perry both texted Meadows with plans to overturn the election. On November 7th, hours before the election was called for Biden, Perry texted Meadows, quote, We have the data-driven program that can clearly show where the fraud was committed. This is the silver bullet, end quote. Perry had previously denied the CNN reporting on his text messages to Meadows, but CNN did confirm the text was sent from his phone number and that he did, in fact, sign this message, quote, Rick Perry, end quote. (laughs) There, There were also unexpected private reactions to the January 6th attack from some of Trump's most vocal supporters, Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene asked Meadows to have Trump calm the crowd at the Capitol, but it looks like he left her on red. Several other Republicans on the Hill asked for help. 
Georgia Representative Barry Loudermilk texted, quote, it's really bad up here on the Hill. They have breached the Capitol, end quote. South Carolina Representative William Timmons texted, the president needs to stop this ASAP. Trump's first chief of staff, Reince Priebus, who we know, Mike, captured what just about everyone watching in the attack thought when he texted Meadows, in all caps, tell them to go home, triple exclamation point. I'm assuming there are, these are their usual reactions to a normal tourist visit. Um, And on January 17th, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene suggested to Meadows that Trump declare martial law to stay in office, spelled M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. But anyway, it appears he didn't respond again. So last week, Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin, two uh, New York Times politics reporters, they have an upcoming book, uh, uh, released recorded audio from a discussion among Republican leaders. And here's a portion of that conversation with Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and then Chair of the House Republican Caucus, Liz Cheney. Liz, you on the phone? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I guess there's a question. When, when we were talking about the 25th Amendment resolution, um, yeah. and you asked if, if, you know, what happens if it gets there after he's gone, is, is there any chance, are you hearing, that he might resign? Is there any reason to think that might happen? I've had some few discussions. My gut tells me no. Um, I'm seriously thinking of having that conversation with him tonight. I haven't talked to him in a couple of days. Um, from what I know of him, I mean, you guys all know him too. Do you think he'd ever back away? But what what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to call him. My This, this is what I think. Um, no one will pass the House. I think there's a chance he'll pass the Senate even when he's gone. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ramifications for that. Now, I haven't had a discussion with the Dems that if he did resign, would it not happen? Now, this is one personal fear I have. Um, I do not want to get into any conversation about him pardoning anything like that. I mean, the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should resign. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it, but I don't know. The House Republican leader, everybody, it would be my recommendation that he should resign. And he was speaking to Liz Cheney on that call. So Catherine, there's uh, a lot of dissonance going on between public and private statements here. Um, McCarthy is publicly a vocal Trump supporter, even after the attack. We might not ever know if he actually had that private conversation with Trump and told him he should resign, but how should we be thinking about this distance between the public and private comments, especially within the context of your work, Moral Rebels? So what's interesting is that as I'm sitting here with you right now, I have a group of students back in Massachusetts in theory taking an exam (laughs) (laughs) and and, and one of the questions, in fact, is about this issue between public conformity and private behavior. And so what's fascinating in that call is that you see him sort of grappling with, well, this is what I'm going to say to my colleague who clearly isn't feeling dissonance, right? Because she had a view and, and she stuck with it. And that has stayed to her view, to her detriment, at least within Republican politics today. 
And it's fascinating to think about how he goes to sleep at night thinking about what he said, of course, denying that he said it. And then there, there we have the recordings. And yet it's so clearly not what he did. And, and although, we, although we don't know, I can't imagine he had that conversation. Yeah, right. I, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, we we would know about that. Yeah. Um, Mike, on November 6th, Jason Miller, um, a Trump campaign spokesperson, texted a group including Ivanka Trump, uh, Jared Kushner, former White House Communications Director Hope Hicks, campaign manager Bill Stepien, uh, Dan Scavino, and Meadows, all in the same group text, right, about how data from Philadelphia didn't back up their claims of election fraud. Miller noted that Trump increased his performance in Philadelphia County in 2020 compared to 2016, uh, but that it made up a smaller share of the statewide vote. And Miller noted it ran counter to the claim of urban vote stealing, right? That's been the rationale and the focus of a lot of the new anti-democracy laws. And it's a lot, it's what you hear when you speak to people who are still convinced that the election was stolen. Um, A lot of the concern about the new provisions of these these anti-democracy laws, which we've talked a lot about on the show, would impact election officials in urban counties. Uh, But Biden's path to victory in a lot of the battleground states was in the suburbs, as, as, as we know and as we've talked about a lot. So how does that change the impact that suburban voters can have on elections going into the midterms now and in 2024? Well, first, let me say this. There were not a lot of very talented political operatives yeah, yeah. in the Trump campaign. I know, I know. And people are laughing. That's like, it's it's funny, but it's also really true. Yeah. If you've been around polit- Republican politics for any time, this was like the D-list of this people is, that you could- These are the people that could not get work anywhere else's kid brother. Yeah. Okay. It, and, I, and I say that because in many ways, what saved the Republic was pure incompetence. Jason Miller is not one of those people. Jason Miller actually knows how to run a campaign and what vote totals look like. And this text is actually very insightful into what was going on because I was spending hours around the clock looking at Philadelphia and the collar counties, as we call them, the five counties around the Philadelphia area. And then the T in in Pennsylvania, it's a very critical state. Anybody involved in a presidential campaign is spending a disproportionate amount of time understanding literally the neighborhoods and precincts in those communities. And he was right. I thought we would get stronger performance in Philadelphia specifically, but where Biden overperformed was in with those Lincoln Project Republicans, those moderate college-educated Republicans in the collared counties around Philadelphia, a little bit less so in Pittsburgh, but Philadelphia. And, and Trump also did not get the same margins he got in the rural T of, of, of Pennsylvania. Sorry to be so in the weeds here, but it is important to understand that what, what Jason was saying is exactly right. That suburban voter is absolutely the critical component to not only a presidential campaign, as we just saw, but perhaps as or more importantly in the midterms coming up. These same voters, which we were able to move off of Trump in the 2020 election, are demonstrating both through polling data and in actual voting in states like Virginia and New Jersey and New York and Texas and Washington State and Illinois in this off-cycle year that they're moving back. They're moving back to the Republican Party. Trump, in many ways, was this aberration at the top of the ticket where Republicans, specifically Republican women, which we talked a lot about on the campaign, college-educated Republican women, could not be 
affiliated with this. They would not put up for what they saw, and they left the Republican Party, at least at the top of the ticket. They were still voting for Republicans down ticket, which is why Republicans did so well in an exceptionally high year. Uh, there, every indication, every indication at this point in time is that they are back in the Republican fold, which bodes very well for the Republican Party uh, in the midterms. A couple of very important caveats to that, and I'm trying to keep this really tight and short. The first is uh, redistricting has happened, and there will be a narrower path than any time in the last 80 years for Republicans to recapture the majority. This big fear of Republicans gerrymandering the entire country into ways that they're, uh, you know, a third of the of the country could somehow come up to being two thirds of the reputation of the representation never materialized. In many ways, um, we're still waiting on three or four states, but um, the Democrats actually may be the winners uh, in in the gerrymandering uh, that had that occurred uh, with the redistricting uh, process. And um, the second, of course, is I, I believe is going to be what happens with the Roe Wade decision when the Supreme Court decides it in a couple of months. These are two critical pieces, one structural, one much more political that I think could break and change the dynamics into the Democrats' favor. But most of the fundamentals do, and history do not bode well for the Democrats in the midterms. And the question, I think, of how big of a majority that Republicans ultimately secure is probably a better question at this point with those two caveats that things absolutely could change. Yeah. In another recording, uh, McCarthy talked about reining in some of the hardliners involved in the efforts to undermine the results of the 2020 election. McCarthy referred to Matt Gates and Mo Brooks and said they could endanger security of other lawmakers at the Capitol. They uh, also discussed other House members who made comments they saw as offensive or dangerous, including Lauren Boebert and Barry Moore. This is also coming from the New York Times reports. Here, here's another clip of McCarthy speaking to the number two House Republican, Steve Scalise. Okay, the other thing I want to bring up, and I'm making some phone calls to some members. Um, I just I just got something sent now about Newsmax, something Matt Gates said, where he's calling people's names out, saying an anti-Trump in this type of uh, atmosphere. Um, and some of the other places, this is, this is serious stuff people are doing that has to stop. Um, I'll make individual yeah, I think Mo, Mo and, uh, and Louis' comments, too, a lot of members have said some real yeah, concerning yeah. things about... Yeah, did, they say did they say something today, too? Not that Louis was at, I mean, um, Mo was at the rally, you know, the we're, we're kicking ass and taking names thing at the Trump rally. Uh, well, these are things right before they kick that ass. Okay, what did Gates say? I, yeah, Gates said Gates brought up Liz specifically. I just saw that on Twitter. Someone just sent it. To, um, Gonzalez just sent it to me, so I'm calling Gates. I'm explaining to him. I don't know how to say, but I'm going to have some other people call him too. But the nature of what, if I'm getting briefing, I'm going to get another one from the FBI tomorrow. Uh, this is serious shit to cut this out. Yeah, that's that, that's that's. Uh, I mean, it's potentially illegal what he's doing. Well, he's putting people in jeopardy, and he, he doesn't need to be doing this. It's, we we saw what people would do in the Capitol, um, you know, and these people came prepared and rope with everything else. After the tapes were released, McCarthy addressed the Republican Caucus on Wednesday. And one GOP House member told the ABC told ABC that the tapes were taken out of context by the Times. Um, I mean, 
but it's re- it's re- it's really hard to like I I don't know how you, I don't so, I'm sorry I don't, I'm not sure how you contextualize a conversation like that oh it potentially illegal like you know we get we get emails from listeners I see, I see these things on Twitter all the time about how like how is it possible there, there's two different things and you're wondering how is it possible right and at the at the the people we're hearing on these conversations the electeds the the people who are having private conversations about how how terrible this is and then publicly are are still leading the loyalty cult um people how can they do that if they know, if they know better how is it possible they can do that and I, and i and i i have to give them the, the very true and yet unsatisfying answer which is that it's really just cravenness it really comes down to uh power and money and influence and an unwillingness to give any of that up because it would cost an enormous amount it would cost them a lot to do that um and they're and they're unwilling to but and, and i wonder what you guys think about that but then there's also the like the republican voters and whether or not any of this does matter whether it will move them and mike you and i were just talking about this you know in in uh in in uh, north carolina uh but it, but the sad reality is that it won't and Catherine, i'd love to hear from you just how do you, how do you make sense of this and how do you you know at at both ends right but that but that the leadership end which is something you think and talk a lot about um and maybe you want to share some recent work you've been doing on on that front but then also at the at the voter end, the individual end, when people are just making decisions about who they want to represent them and what character traits that you know they they think ought to be um, endowed with the power to make decisions about how the country runs, this is okay. This seems to be okay. So I have so many different thoughts, and yeah. I guess the first one is, Lordy, thank away. goodness they're tapes, right? I mean, yeah. that, right? So that is because yeah. clearly, if they were not tapes we would have no insight into what had happened because they they would continue to lie about what had happened that day. So, so I think that's first. I think second of all, everyone had a choice, right? So you can see that Kevin McCarthy is making a choice. Liz Cheney has made a different choice. Um, Mitt Romney has made a different choice. Lisa Murkowski has made a different choice. So people had a choice that day in terms of sticking with the narrative that reflected reality. Or they had a choice to lie about it and to sort of convince themselves that this was a normal tourist event or whatever. So when I think about leadership, I think first, there really were options. So if you talk about the role of personality, what separates the moral rebels? What separates people who are willing to take a really hard vote, uh, a really hard stand, uh, and and people who are willing to lie because of their craven need for power, you know, that I want to be elected speaker. So, so to me, that's really interesting. I'm also was very mindful, Mike, of what you were talking about in terms of what we're seeing with Republican voters now. I wonder, we've heard a lot within the last week, two weeks about the Pennsylvania Senate race. And we've heard about Trump's endorsement and and a fair amount of fire about, you know, that. And and so what's interesting to me is I'm really taken with, well, what do the Republican voters do? Are they paying attention to, well, Trump, you know, I, I moved away from Trump in 2020, right? That's the suburban college-educated women moved away from Trump. So what does Trump's endorsement now do? Does Trump's, is Trump's endorsement of Dr. Oz powerful mm-hmm. or is it offensive, right? I mean, how much is there sort of guilt by association? So I was really thinking about that in terms of your remarks. I was thinking a lot about Ohio, Mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right place, the right, right thing to be <laughs> thinking about, you know, politically. Let me, uh, let me, let me start there, right? Because I think it is interesting and insightful. And, and I think one of the reasons why it is so interesting is because 
Um, I think he just stitched two really important pieces together, which is what were the leaders doing with these individual decisions they had to make that affected them very directly and personally with their status? Uh, But what is the average person when they're making these same decisions doing? And how has this dysfunction consumed a party of this size and scope at all of these levels? Uh, The the first is, um, I I think, look, just generally, I think Donald Trump's uh, endorsement um, record is going to be very mixed coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, I think he's going to win some, and I think he's going to lose some, which I think for him is actually a net loss. I think it it, it actually shows that there is some hemorrhaging uh, in the Republican base, and he is not the kingmaker, um, at least not in its entirety. He's not he's not you know the um, the end all be all. Uh, there are people that who can run against him. I think he's going to do very poorly in Georgia. I think he probably. Um, it's going to be very competitive in Pennsylvania. I'm not too sure Oz gets there, but he's certainly been strengthened by the endorsement. Ohio is very peculiar. J.D. Vance has been running in fifth place. Trump j- jumps in there, and now he's zooming to the top, and, and, and J.D. Vance is actually peaking at exactly the right time that you want to as a candidate in this race. And I think he's going to consolidate that vote, and I think they can probably spin that into a very significant win. So um, a long way of saying, I think it's going to be really mixed. I think he'll win one, he'll lose the other one, and there's going to be enough to kind of claim victory or claim defeat, depending on on what happens or, or, or explain away defeat uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, that's where, where the voters are at. I, I do want to spend a little bit of Please, time because, here. Because you have known McCarthy. I've known Kevin for 25 yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, we were in young Republican battles together. Uh, I knew him when he was a uh, staffer for Congressman Bill Thomas, and I was the political director of the California Republican Party. Uh, I don't want to say we were kids together because we were a little older than kids, but we were very young in this business. And I've seen him um, as a staffer. I've seen him as a political operative. I knew him as the Republican Party leader in the California State Legislature in the Assembly. And then, of course, I've watched him uh, uh, his career really on a fast-track trajectory here in the Congress. Um most people, Republicans, staffers, uh, longtime lobbyists who've worked with Kevin over the past two decades will literally say, if you run into them on the street, I don't know who this man is anymore. I don't, this is not the Kevin I've known. Kevin has always, always been on the kind of moderate side, vocally as a critic, trying to push back on the extreme elements of the Republican Party as a way of building towards a majority. It's extremely important to understand one thing about Kevin McCarthy. He has a finger on the pulse of the Republican electorate more than any other person I think I've ever worked with in elected office ever before. He can read the electorate, not just his caucus, but the electorate. And uh, to a remarkable sense, he's very focused on campaigns. He started the Young Guns program. Young Guns program, that's right. It's a huge deal when that launched. Huge deal when that launched. He is a uh, tremendous operative, and he's an operative first. And he learned that in the Bill Thomas machine, which was kind of legendary in California. And he kind of became the heir uh, to that. So, um, and it's also been personally a struggle to kind of watch him doing this because I've always known him to be somebody who was wily enough, clever enough, smart enough to fight back those elements in the party in order to do the right thing. And to just watch this capitulation is troubling, not at a personal level, it just is, but it's also concerning at a professional level because as he capitulates, what it also tells me is that there's really no road back 
for the Republican Party because if anybody could figure out that road back, it would have been Kevin McCarthy. And so um, he's made his own decision um, to to say, even though this is not who I am or who I've been, um, this is who I now am going to be. And that is more important to me because there's either no road back to the Republican Party or it would cost too much to make that decision. And I'm not willing to give up uh, those things that I've always wanted in my career. And the upside for me to change <laughs> everything that I have been is greater than the downside of, of losing by standing on principle. And so it's been a, you know, it's, it's one thing to watch this in the abstract because we all watch this on TV or, or podcasts or, or social media. It's something else to have known somebody. And I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, we would like go on family vacations no, together no, or anything can, like that. I can relate to this experience yeah. with other people yeah, in the business. But, but you yeah. know, there were political battles that we had been in and, you know, and you know, same at convention, you know, a couple times a year. Um, and, 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 you know, he, he was, he was the, the leader, like I said, of the Republican party, uh, assembly Republicans where, you know, we interacted with his team all the time. And so, um, th this is somebody who I have a, a pretty keen un insight and understanding to how he has operated in different capacities. And this is behavior that is very unlike anything that he's exhibited over the three decades, two and a, you know, 25 years, yeah. I guess, that I've w known and worked with him. And I think to yeah. Catherine's point, that's just, it's, it's troubling for well, a lot of reasons. For, for a lot of reasons. It's not just the personal, uh, you know, change, although that's troubling yeah. in and of itself. It's also kind of what it tells me about the, where the winds are blowing. Yeah. I would love, Catherine, for you to dig into that a little bit more because like you, you said earlier that they all had a choice, right? They all had a choice, but I think it's also accurate to say that every minute that goes by, they have a choice. They, the choice doesn't just expire in the moment, right? You, you have a choice every single day to do the thing that you know, you probably ought to do. So I'd love for you to speak to that. And then to Mike's, to Mike's point about the sort of, can I call it the, 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 the calcification of behavior over time, where if you, as you continue to make those choices, it becomes harder and harder and harder to, can you speak to like what's going on psychologically? Here? Sure. So I will say that what is so sad about these tapes is it really actually suggests that that day you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, I don't know how long, 72 hours, some period of time, everybody was actually in alignment, Yeah. right? We just listened to a couple of tapes of heated agreement, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> they, actually, that's they, right. They, they yeah. were in agreement. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, what are we going to do about this problem? You know, we have this problem and, and I, maybe you should call him. Yeah, I think I'll call him. You know, that's what, because we're in alignment about it. And so what's interesting is that if you didn't know, if you were watching this in a movie and you didn't know how it turned out, that would have been a very, that would have been the heat of the moment of the movie. Oh yes, they're going to do the right thing. Okay. It took a riot. It took hang Mike Pence, you know, but they got there. But they got there. Oh, oh yes. Yes. Oh good. I was waiting. I was nervous. It seemed like there was going to be a tragedy, but oh, right. What a yeah. relief. Oh, this is great. Go get the popcorn. And then there was a moment. And, and that to me is what's really interesting is that, that how long did it take? How long did it take? Because Kevin was right in with her. He was right in with, 
I got to call my, my recommendation is he should resign. You know, that is what I think. He went to the floor yeah. a couple of uh, days later. Right. Yeah. A, a bowl, as did Mitch McConnell. Right. right. I mean, so, so if you were to watch it as a movie, that would have been the, okay, Republican party has really kind of let us down in a lot of ways, you know, for four or five years, you know, it seemed kind of hopeful, you know, they didn't endorse, they didn't support, then they did, but, but they finally had come to their senses and it took this riot, but we're good. And so to me, what's most interesting is actually everybody was good for a very, very small period of time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we don't know if that was hours. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was right after yeah. this ended. Maybe it yeah. was 24 hours, maybe it was a week. I mean, it just, but that strikes me as the really interesting period of time, right? January 5, January 6 to a week, right? I mean, there was a period of time there and you all, I'm sure know this better than I do, which Mitch McConnell said, well, we can't really rush through, you know, the thing now we're going to wait. I mean, there was a period of time in which there really seemed to be a shifting. So to me, psychologically, that period of time of everybody does have a choice all the time, but that was a crucial moment. And some people stuck with it and said, yeah, I'm going to stick with this and I'm going to take the vote and I'm going to, you know, be, you know, are you going to continue to support me or not? And then some people said, eh, it's a normal tourist event, really not that big a deal, you know, et cetera. So to me, that's the sort of really interesting piece. It is really interesting. Mike, what do you imagine happened in the, in the, in the, in the period between that still serious agreement and what would happen, what would begin to unfold over the next months? And now here, here we are where they're you know, explaining away and actually they've completely flipped the narrative upside down. And actually, if you, you were a hero, if yeah. you were a January 6th, how do we get from the moment Catherine just described to what, what, what decisions were, yeah. were happening and yeah. who, who do you imagine the players were and what, you know, what was the, a couple things first, because yeah. it's a great question, but yeah. the, I love the analogy of a movie, right? Because yeah, you're it thinking is. it's like, it's a bad, crescendo. It's, it's a, a bad B movie. <laughs> that you wouldn't believe in reality could ever get this far. And yeah. Sure. People storm the Capitol and yeah. America, whatever. And then suddenly, yeah. Okay. Let's all come together. And then they all take the vote and get rid of him. And, and, and he's gone and he's gone. And the truth is the specter of Donald Trump politically is damaging to the 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 um, opportunities that McConnell and and Kevin and so many others see. If he is the dominant dictator of the Republican Party forever, they're not going anywhere. They're the ambitions of them running the town, running Washington D.C., becoming a you know presidential aspirants. That's all gone unless these people are willing to politically pick up the dagger and do unto Caesar, right? If they won't do that, they're basically capitulating their careers anyway, yes, right? right? So there's, yeah. it's like- it's, what, They're doomed. They're doomed. So so what, what happened, right? Basically what happened was there was still an element and they were named by Scalise, Gates, Brooks, Gomert, Green, Bobert, Cawthorn, all of the the you know the the land of the misfit toys caucus <laughs> right these are the people who basically were saying we don't care about anything except for the Donald Trump cult and we're going to preserve and protect it and we will go to the mattresses for it even through all the nonsense that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell put up with for 4 years they showed the Kevin that I've known for 25 years on these tapes in quiet which means they've been having these conversations in quiet for, for, for four years as they were trying to manage the politics of the situation under normal circumstances. And, but when, when publicly pushed, 
And those elements, those fringe elements of the caucus who came out and Donald Trump, he, and, and the other kind of frightening thing that, that, that Kevin said was, even if I go to him, we, you know, you know him, Liz, he's not going to back down. He's going to lie. He's going to say what he's going to say. He's going to whip up the mob. And we're all out of office if that happens, because if we stand up for the right thing, he'll turn on us and then we're gone. And so that becomes, I think, the decision, because remember, it was only a week from the time that Kevin McCarthy was on the floor of the House saying the president bears responsibility for this. He literally said that. Yeah. Not, the fact that I have to say I it know. again to remind yeah. people that he literally said that. And a week later, he was at Mar-a-Lago kissing the ring. And that means that those extreme elements, and it doesn't even take many, stood up and said, we're going to fight. And Donald Trump was like, then I'm going to be with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates, which is why Matt Gates to this day is still coming against Kevin McCarthy. And that's why he had to shift that quickly, because if he had th- that speech on the House the well, the, the floor of the house completely jeopardized his career. He, he got had to call. apologize. He had to fly down and genuflect and kiss the ring and apologize and, 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 you know, yeah. Promise to never be disloyal yeah. again. Yeah. That's what happened. I want to add one more layer to like to, 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 I think what was happening because the, the, the Gates, Bobert, Gomer, the, all Margie Taylor Green, all of those people represent enormous fundraising cash cows for the party and media because, attention. But because they because they are the ones. Kevin McCarthy is not able to tap was not at the time tapping into the kind of grassroots donor base that was all whipped up uh, the way that those ones were. Right, we, as we know, we've mentioned multiple times. Marjorie Taylor Green just in this last 20, I think twenty twenty one first quarter outraised Liz Cheney right. by a factor of two. Right. At least, yeah. and all that money is not coming from Georgia; it's coming from all around the country. And as we know, the fringe elements on the, these fringe elements, as you described, uh, are very similar phenomena happening on the left. The fringe elements are able to raise all of the grassroots money, and by the way, that's why Chuck Schumer is not behaving like Chuck Schumer, like a majority leader, right. because he's terrified of an AOC primary. Right. For the same reasons, the same elements, the same phenomenon on both ends of the spectrum is is creating this, and they and money is an important layer here because they have never had access to that kind of and sort of media, turnkey. Yeah. And, and media funding. attention too. And media and attention, they're closely yeah. correlated, but we are literally in a place where the structures of governance are advantaging the extreme, the performative, the non-ideological, uh, just it's simply performance. It's what can I do tonight to make sure that I'm trending on Twitter, um, which gets money it gets more, you know, that that feeds into the mainstream media cable news cycle and more people in the Republican base can uh, identify Marjorie Taylor Greene than can identify Kevin McCarthy. And that's that's never been the situation ever before. And so it's extraordinarily difficult to enforce party discipline in an environment like that. Well, and you started earlier by saying, what attention will this get or will this change yeah. voters' minds? Yeah. I mean, to me, that's that's the perfect illustration, right? The number of people who will say, were there some tapes? What was that about? Versus what crazy thing? Oh, oh, Cawthorn brought a loaded gun to the airport, right? Like more people will see that. And so it's also the case where this seems horrific, but it's not getting the attention 
broadly that it really should that be. It really should right. be. Yeah. Well, and remember if, if McConnell and Kevin had gone further down the road to get rid of Trump, Trump would have gone to war with Fox News mm-hmm. if Fox News had not backed his play, mm-hmm. which would they're already bleeding to Newsmax and OANN and the right wing, you know, media cycle. He would have declared war if they did not become Trump TV. And that's what they did. And, and that threatened McConnell and that threatens Kevin's hold on the speakership. You're still seeing that with Tucker Carlson, who's taking on Kevin McCarthy every night. This week, Twitter's board approved Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover offer. But the deal won't close until it's approved by Twitter shareholders. There hasn't been a date for the vote released yet, but Twitter's annual meeting is scheduled for May 25th. The board is recommending shareholders accept the proposal. Since beginning his hostile takeover bid, Musk has so far proposed adding an edit button, making Twitter's algorithm open source, cracking down on bots, and doing something to secure free speech. On Tuesday, Musk tweeted that by free speech, he means that the Twitter policies would align with legal restraints on speech. He wrote, if people want less free speech, they will ask government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people, end quote. It's important to note here that in the United States, as we've mentioned multiple times, this is this is the um, this is the very well worn argument now by uh, a lot of the people, especially on this show, politicology, that in the United States, First Amendment speech protects uh, the protections would stop government from passing laws restricting speech, even if an overwhelming majority of people supported it. That's how the First Amendment works, folks. That's like it's important to understand that. There's also a clear distinction between violating Twitter's terms of service, which at worst would result in loss of your account, uh, versus violating a law, which would result in the loss of liberty. Um, it's also not immediately, immediately clear how, how Musk and Twitter would account for differences in state laws. Many people on Twitter have pointed this out um, regarding things like harassment and, and also, by the way, differences in laws in different countries. Although, you know, I think it would be more generous to just assume he meant in the United States. Let's just Let's just let's just keep this conversation for the sake of you know uh, all kinds of arguments within the context of U.S. law, um, but you know obviously we don't know exactly what's going to happen. This deal has gotten a ton of attention over the last few weeks, um, and so before I before I dig into what I'm really what, what I'm really curious <laughs> about here, I just want to open open forum. How did you both react to the news that the board reached an agreement on this sale? I was I was surprised that they did. I thought when they adopted a poison pill strategy, this was going to be not just viewed as a really hostile takeover, but this was a burn it to the ground moment. Um, I really thought there was no way that they would go forward with this. I'm still not convinced that they will, by the mm. way. I don't think this deal is done. <laughs> I don't even think it's – I don't want to say it's not that close. I think there's a very long way to go to make this thing actually happen. But having said that, the first thing I thought was, well, I mean, Trump's going to come back. Right. Which changes everything in the country again. Um, And I I was just, I think, very shocked and surprised that they did come to terms, especially as quickly as they did after announcing publicly that they had a poison pill strategy to kind of, you know, make the the, the company um, unfinanceable in order to to be secured. Yeah. What was your reaction, Catherine? Well, 
so this strikes me as sort of similar to what we were just talking about in terms of whiplash, right? Because they said, oh, he's joined the board. And then they're like, no, he's not. And right. <laughs> and then they were like, no, but he's going to take over. And they're like, no, poison pill. And it just struck me as, I mean, every 24 hours, there was a different story. And so it did sort of seem like, is, is another shoe going to drop in terms of, is this really going to happen or not? I was also surprised. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So what I'm really, really curious about is, uh, the reactions to this news. Uh, and, and I, I want to dig into that because depending on where you look, right, this is either, uh, the best thing that has ever happened to America (laughs) or people are going to die as a result of this. Um, and you know, there will be lynchings in the streets and like, you know, the, all hell is going to break loose and I'm moving to Canada. Literally. I've seen multiple (laughs) trending people saying, I'm going to move to Canada if this happens. And then it happened. And then people are like, well, are you gone? Are you gone yet? Right. So, so I'm really going to buy Canada. Now he's going to come buy Canada. Look out. So, so what, what, because we don't know exactly how the policy is going to change. We don't even know to your point, Mike, that it's definitely going to go through. Um, I, and there's some of that, maybe we'll dig into it a little bit about what he's taught, how he's talking about changing it, you know, because algorithmic transparency is a thing I think is a good idea, at least to some degree. And we should, there's merit to what I think some of what he wants to do, but I want to just, I want to, I want to explore the phenomena of the reactions from these, the, the two different, violently different reactions to the sale and what it says about where we are now and um that you can pick either one you want which which end which but but what do you make of just how serious because remember after all this is a social media platform it's just one social media platform now the 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 opposite of you know someone else might say well it's now the public square even but it's privately held and that's a whole different thing it is where a lot of influential people go to learn news make news announce big things. It's where, you know, the, the, the thinking class goes to explore ideas sometimes and a handful of characters, but, um, it is a very important one, but it also, it's, it's, it lives in cyberspace. It's a digital platform. So why are people having these existential crises or why are they, you know, what do you make of that, Catherine? So I think first it's very clear that Trump will be back. Right. I mean, so I think that, and I, and I think that plays into it, right. That, that, that sort of is the, it's just the foregone conclusion, right. How would Trump, how would he not want Trump to be back on, right. If you want to have a lot of people following your platform and you have somebody who's tweeting out with, you know, many, many millions of followers. And so, so first I think that's part of it, but it also strikes me as this is just one of a series of things that seems surprising in the sense of the polarization, right. So COVID not not, shouldn't be politicized. And yet it was, right? Do you wear a mask? Do you not? Your school closed, you know, whatever, et cetera. It became completely polarized. It seemed early on like the the war in Ukraine was going to be polarized, right? I mean, is, you know, what, is Putin a hero? He's a strong man or is he really, you know, evil? And so it seems to me that this, the Twitter thing is very similar to almost every idea seems to be politicized. And that to me seems very, very unfortunate. If we think about sort of a common humanity uh, there really should be a greater good and the ability to see a greater good. And, and certainly Twitter could be better. Twitter is, again, the public square. But, but the idea that it really has become, I mean, as you started with, Ron, you know, people are going to die. This is the worst <laughs> thing ever. This is going to be, we're going to have an edit button and that'll be great, yeah, you know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, right. Mike? I think it's really kind of a... Um, a statement on on the way our media 
works and or doesn't work. And I think that there's still a lot of opinion leaders that are stuck in sort of the 1970s on this, thinking there's just ABC, CBS, and whatever the other one was. Um, NBC. NBC, thanks. NBC. Um, <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is this. I mean, the fact that, that um, a, a such a significant, quote-unquote, significant platform where so much of the country lives can change in one day because essentially an oligarch can kind of come in and buy it means it's not a public square. It's, it's a privately owned company that could be that, no, that is subject to the whims of the owner or the board or majority of the shareholders. In this case, that would be Elon Musk and his political or her political inclinations would drive whether or not or what types of conversations that we can have. No one person should have that much power in a democracy. But the problem is it's not a public square. We're treating it like it is. It's a privately owned company. Now, that doesn't mean we can't regulate it and go in and and say, look, this has become a utility. We are so reliant on this as a society that we need to have government oversight and we're going to break this up in a way that that requires um, some certain norms and standards of speech the way we used to when there were CBS, NBC, and ABC. You couldn't just go on and say whatever the heck you wanted. I mean, Walter Cronkite was not going <laughs> to be going nuts and saying a bunch of, you know, white supremacist things and, and saying that's free speech. I can say whatever I want to. Um, that was because we, it was a pretty heavily regulated utility. Essentially, it was a utility, right? Yeah, the, but- the, our federal airwaves were essentially regulated. Ooh, we also had decency standards at we, that it, time, which it, prohibited it, you from talking about sometimes important Things, and, e- right? and equal time, and yeah. equal time standards. There was a whole lot right. of buffers yeah. into saying, okay, we're going to allow for a maximum amount of, of freedom, but within certain parameters, because I, I do believe that unlimited speech is dangerous, right? There's a reason why you can't go into a theater and yell fire, right? You can't foment insurrection and say, this is just free speech. There are limits to it. And there needs to be in this new digital age limits to it, especially when um, so many people are engaged in the platform. And I think that I think this is begging for some sort of regulatory environment, at least the parameters or the the safeguards on it. And I think that this is kind of a wake up call, hopefully to both sides, mm. because like I said, the left kind of freaked out and was like, oh, my God, a lot of people left. And so like, I'm immediately <laughs> yeah. out of there. I'm gone right now. Yeah. And, you know, the right wing is like celebrating yeah. like, this, like they won an election or something. <laughs> and it's like we're just at this, and it's like, no, it's just Twitter. If you shut it off and like go outside and get some you know sun, <laughs> you might feel a little bit different. Right. But that's just not where we're at as a society. And I think we, we the, the, my hope is, and again, I understand how Pollyannish this is saying it because it's not the, the world we live in, but if the Musk deal does not go through, there's going to be an equal celebration on the left yeah, yeah. and the right will do what, you know, kind of start wringing its hands. Truth Social will make a comeback. I was going to say, I'm surprised <laughs> that the right is still on Twitter. I no. thought they were all in Truth Social. Yeah, right. right? But Donald Trump says they are. <laughs> but but, but that, and that, that, that is not the way... Um, a country one of the one of the unifying factors of mass media during the television age when it was only broadcast was that we were all watching the same news and that made it monetizable you could have 
people advertising to a wide swath of audience. It also forced journalism to really focus on hard news. Once we atomized that, we started to niche things off and we started to sell and monetize based off of advertisers and, and hard news no longer paid. There was no money in it. So we started going to the Foxification, MSNBCification, and CNNification of news, and they all talk about three different topics. They're not news shows. They're not journalism. Um, CNN, I think, would argue with that. But you know, MSNBC, and I'm probably going to you know start getting hate mail now too. I mean, Rachel Maddow is not a journalist, right? She doesn't claim to be. No, she's a storyteller. She's a storyteller. She's a good storyteller. And she's fantastic. Yeah. And that's why she does as well as she does. But she's not a journalism and doesn't journalist and doesn't claim to be, neither is Sean Hannity. They're there to 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 entertain. And they're very good at it. Um, they are not well, they're gonna win the Walter Cronkite Award anytime soon because hard news does not, it's not monetizable. There's no way to make it make money. At least no one has figured that out yeah. yet. Yeah. Catherine, what do you what, uh, going going back to like the, the 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 you know the fragmentation of media the way, way we are not, we are now we are now dealing in niche news and that creates all kinds of you know spin and narrative opportunities right no matter where you get your news is being spun somehow but what do you what do you make of the the preference for individuals to choose news that is that suits them and how, how, what is, what is the, what is the, you know, body of work look like in psychology around that and, and forcing yourself out of your comfort zone to learn things that might be uncomfortable or, or might conflict with your, um, how much effort does that take now? And do people do it? So ironically, I am in DC in person today to give a talk tonight on the science of problem solving, mm, Okay, <laughs> which is basically a talk about cognitive errors. Yes. Right. I mean, oh, so, so, yes. and that's, and in fact, what I time give, is your talk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite subjects. But, but that's, I think, a perfect example of of what we call in psychology confirmation bias. Right. So you have a, a theory, you have a worldview, and so you look for information that supports it. You know, whether that's Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, you look for information that supports it, and then you say, yeah, I guess I was right about that as a situation. And and the challenge is that there could be times in which people are very well-intentioned, but actually make errors in terms of their thinking. So, so the example, and this, of course, this podcast will play after the talk, so I, I don't have to ruin it. But, but the opening that I start with is actually what happened on my campus and many campuses across the country after the horrific shooting at Virginia Tech. Mm. So as, as I'm sure you remember, there was a student, the student went into multiple classrooms, shot a number of faculty and students. And, and that led to a number of changes on college campuses, including mine. And what they did is they created a new locking system on every single classroom. And then they had instructions and they're still there now. And it was how I could if there was a shooter, lock my students in the classroom. And so every faculty member got an email with all the different instructions for every classroom so that we could do this. And again, it was very, very well-intentioned. But the reality is, and I use it as an example of problem-solving error, the reality is most college students are not at risk of dying from a shooting in their college classroom. We know what college students are at risk of dying of. They're at risk of dying from suicide increasingly. They're at risk of dying from drinking and drug use and overdosing. They're at risk of texting and driving and drinking and driving and so on. We, we know what 
kills college students and it's not school shootings. And so that's an example of a cognitive error, right? That we make in our problem solving. Very, very well intentioned. Let's keep our students safe by allowing faculty to lock students in their classrooms, but it's not the way to save college student lives. And so to me, the challenge is if you're thinking about confirmation bias, and in particular, people looking for news and looking for information that supports their worldview, it's not engaging in rigorous scientific thinking, right? About, well, what is the truth and what is the reality? I think of that a lot in terms of the the COVID situation. So I flew to DC this morning, first time I've been on an airplane in which I haven't had to wear a mask in a couple of years, right? Same for us just in the last few days. Yeah, it was was a surreal experience. And it's a surreal experience, right? It's a surreal experience of what what do I do? Well, I don't have to, but should I? And some people are and some people aren't. And and what do I do? But we've also seen that, that COVID has become politicized in the sense that Certain governors kept the state really on lockdown. Uh, certain governors said there is no COVID or, you know, <laughs> we're, we're past COVID and, you know, don't worry about that or whatever. And, and in a sense, people stopped looking for accurate information. I mean, we know that, right? That, that if you look at liberals overwhelmingly, they're like, COVID is very dangerous and, you know, could kill me, you know, very quickly. And, and conservatives are like, nah, you know, COVID's what nothing. COVID? It's right. What COVID? <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm going to take the it's horse the tranquilizer or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's going to be fine. And that's the same thing. And that has hurt us, right? It has hurt us that we can't have an objective scientific analysis of when should we wear a mask and when shouldn't we, et cetera, because it has become this performative, you know, I am a liberal. And so I have to wear a mask all the time. Yeah. It, 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 it is quite that. Uh, I would love to hear that your was a tonight. super long answer. No, 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 to your no, 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 that's it. Sorry. I was waiting. I was waiting for you to go on. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to, I want to come to your talk. Uh, okay. I want to, let, let's turn this just a little bit. Um, Mike, since the democracy movement in Hong Kong mm-hmm. in 2019, Twitter has removed hundreds of thousands of Chinese accounts, yeah. uh, labeled state media tweets, uh, and stopped advertising from government spokespeople and has declined to cooperate with requests from the Chinese government, according to Reuters. Twitter is pretty safe from uh, Xi Jinping's reach, right? But Tesla produces about half of its automobiles in Shanghai. Uh-huh. <laughs> Reuters also reported that the Chinese market produced 25% of Tesla's Q1 sales, making it their second largest market. Uh-huh. Also, unlike Twitter, Tesla is profitable. Twitter has lost money over the last two years, while Tesla's profits have soared. So how do you think about the potential conflicts with the Chinese government? Um, And I remember, I think I remember us having a conversation about the NBA thing. Uh, This was last year, the year before, I don't recall, but how how do you add that into the mixture? Well, look, I think it's it's part of this broader conflict between what we loosely define as democracies uh, or liberal governments and authoritarian regimes, right? And and when your factors of production increasingly are in these authoritarian regimes because you are benefiting from either very, very cheap labor and or the potential and, and swelling consumer market um, – you over reliant on that on the whims of that government for either making for making a profit coming and going, and that's why the NBA's got a problem. The NBA want has got viewers there and they and consumers of those products, and Tesla and Apple are you know aren't can't be companies unless they're manufacturing their products in those two spaces. 
So if we think that that the Chinese government isn't aware of that mm-hmm. and the extraordinary <laughs> leverage that that has over these systems, we're, we're fooling ourselves. And if I, I think if we don't think that they're going to be, that's going to be the, and I don't want to say the next, because I think it's a current battlefield and the tension between these two worldviews. Only increasing. It's only increasing and it's increasing daily. And I think when once we start talking about social media platforms, look, there's so much that a free people, and I don't just mean the United States, but a globally a free people can overcome as long as they can communicate. Once the methods and means of communications shut down, it becomes exponentially easier to suppress people and to control people. It's that flow of information. It's that flow of ideas. It's that flow of coordination that allows people to overcome those barriers. And we've got to be, you know, we were just talking about about Twitter being privately held. Once that comes under the influence of an authoritarian regime, that's a complete game changer. And that's, you know, in, in, in a way that I don't, I don't think Americans have ever really understood or experienced because most of our censorship here, not all, but most of our censorship is now coming from social ostracization. It's coming from being shouted down by other citizens or other influential people to either embarrass you or humiliate you or destroy your reputation or your job or your career. Or keep you from saying anything in the first place. And especially to do that is to prevent those ideas. That's why they do it. That's why it is so public. But that's different than, you know, someone knocking on your door and saying, hey, I saw your tweet. Come yeah, with us. God, that's exactly right. Do you know what I mean? And that's, that's a whole new level. Okay, now that we're up to speed on a couple- Now I'm much more worried about it. Now that actually, like my anxiety about it has increased substantially in the last 10 minutes. My goodness, I, 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 had, a, I, had, a, I had a, well, we'll see kind of attitude before, but anyway. One of these days, I will, I will, I will, I will lead a, a moment, a, a meditation, a very brief meditation at the end so that everybody can just take a deep breath and tune into your body and just, okay, anyway, now- um, that we were, maybe we should build that into the look ahead yeah, segment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the plus segment. The plus segment. The plus. Go start with meditation. A couple of the biggest stories this week. Anyway, um, let's turn to what you're watching under the radar. Catherine, what do you have for us? So I'm a professor. And so I am watching what's happening in Florida in terms of the banning of math books <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't know we got to math now. I didn't no, I didn't but, know math was in the mix. No, that's it's um I math books. And here's the thing, math books, you you and I have actually spoken a couple times in this yeah. podcast about growth mindset. Yeah. They Carol are Dweck. banning books that talk about effort. Oh, that wow. talk about growth mindset. They're banning books. DeSantis is you know, 21 books, I think. And it's because they are talking about social emotional learning, uh, which includes growth mindset and includes effort. All of the things that we know help kids achieve in math, right? Yes. And and we had a long discussion in, in my seminar on Tuesday afternoons. And and one of the, the women in the class who's a, a junior was like, but I don't understand. I thought you were supposed to think that you could get better at math if you tried. And that books that describe that very well regarded in the field oh of psychology God. concept are being yeah. 
excluded, that they're not viable for sale in the state of Florida. Again, they, they, they mentioned nothing about critical race theory, you know, nothing about, you know, whatever. They're, they're simply books about try harder oh, and you can get it. My God. Oh my God. The book, by the way, Politicology listeners, you should go read this book. They should give it to school students. Uh, by Carol Dweck, the name is Mindset, right? Yes, it's just yes, called Mindset. Yes. And it is one, it is, it's, it's like a, especially if you're a young person, you read this book, it will immediately change your behavior. Like the, the hour that you read it, it opens your eyes to, to so much. Well, and it has all sorts of ramifications. So yeah. yes, you should try harder in math, but you should also try harder in sports yeah. or in your social life yeah. or in, you know, sort of, you know, are you a good writer or a musician or whatever? Yeah. The, the power of effort is well regarded and, yeah. and well understood. And so to me, it's just terrifying that these are precisely the messages that we want kids to get. I've got three kids of my own. Um, and and it, it just strikes me as exactly contrary to what we know, helps kids achieve. And I can't for the life of me imagine that that teachers yeah. and principals yeah. and parents in Florida yeah. Yeah. think this is a good idea. I also I also want to note that like one of the core takeaways from this this, this book for me was it, it it separates it shows you the difference between having an identity about something and doing something, right? You either are a person who is good at math or you are a person who worked hard to be good at math, right? You either are, or I'm not. And, and the, those, those, uh, self narratives, those stories become self-enforcing. If you, you know, if you, uh, you fail a test, math test one time, okay, well, I guess I'm a, I'm bad at math. I am bad at math. That's a fixed statement that isn't going to change versus I didn't do very well this time and I can work harder and do better the next time. The ability, the agency that's built in to the different, the, the difference between doing work and creating an identity out of either failure or success, right? It's huge. It, it's huge. And it's also the case where even for kids who feel they are good at math as an identity, all of a sudden stop trying so hard because if you think you're good at math and you try hard and you, and you don't do well, then, oh, I guess I'm bad at math. So it's, it's equally problematic for kids who identify as good or bad in that sense. So it's just, so that has just struck with me and is, is terribly discouraging. That's all makes no sense for him to do. I don't understand that one. Actually. I don't get that. Doesn't, doesn't jive. Mike, I'm glad you didn't ask me what the political, uh, effect, I have no idea. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. What do you got? Um, I read a New York Times article today by Jasmine Yuloa about the increasing number of ads in Republican primaries focusing on the issue of undocumented people coming to this country to vote, which is a complete lie. <laughs> it's, a, it's all fabricated. There's no justification for it, but you're seeing J.D. Vance. Uh, Not Jasmine, by the way. <laughs> no, yeah, no, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, Jasmine, yeah. Sorry, Jasmine, you did a great job. Uh, Ohio Republican candidate, you know, J.D. Vance, part of his surge was based off of that. The governor of Alabama, who ran a the No Way Jose ad, which is overtly oh, racist I, and just yeah. ugly. Um, this this and what's what's really fascinating about this dynamic is the more anti Latino, anti immigrant, anti undocumented immigrant, the more conspiracy theory based this stuff is on on things that are not happening are happening in the most. Um, 
ethnically and racially homogenous, least mm. diversified areas mm. of the country. It's all based off of this threat of what is coming and what is happening, even though none of it is happening. So um, it's a dynamic I saw in California in the early, mid-1990s. I thought it would be kind of gone, but uh, no, nothing is quite ever gone, and we're starting to see a resurgence of it again. Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to, I'm, I'm going to read something that a listener sent in, which I thought was just fantastic. Uh, and we're going to discuss that. Where can people find you on the internet, Catherine? Well, I guess I, I have to go to Truth Social now. I mean, I got, but I, I'm going to have to get an account. So I don't really know. Um, I'm, as of now, I am on uh, Twitter at Sanderson Speaks and Instagram at Sanderson Speaking. And the book is? Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels, Thank of you. which we need more. Of which we desperately <laughs> need more. Mike? Uh, you find me on Twitter. I am Mike Madrid still. Um, Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslo. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.